Now this morning in this early morning service, let's go ahead and continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. And it is a joy to be back. Now I did, I was here in the pulpit Wednesday night. It was our question and answer night. So this is my first time preaching in four weeks. So strap in and be ready. But it was good having uh, Brother Walters and Brother Heath here for our uh, missions emphasis. Then last week, you all had Brother Bateman here while my wife and I were gone for a few days. And so thank them for filling in and thank each of you for being in your place. And this morning, let's continue in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, over in Philippians 3.20, you don't have to turn there. Paul says, our conversation, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we are looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word conversation in the older English does not mean the same thing that we think of as conversation today. We think of our speech, talking, having a conversation. But the idea in this verse has the idea of a citizenship. And so we as Christians are pilgrims here on earth, and our true citizenship is in heaven. If you are a born-again child of God today, you are a, well, I'll say a dual citizen, but your, your primary citizenship is now in heaven, not here on earth, okay? We are citizens of heaven. Now, I've not seen my homeland yet. I've not seen heaven yet. The Bible tells me it's a beautiful place, and I cannot wait to see it. But nonetheless, I'm still a, he a heavenly citizen. Therefore, there's a certain conduct with which I am to carry myself here on earth. Paul says in another place, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that we are ambassadors of God. Because if we're citizens of heaven and we're here on earth, then we need to view ourselves as ambassadors. Now, I don't know if anybody here ever served on Marine Security Guard duty at any embassy. Have you? Have you? No? Okay. But you both have been deployed, right? No? No? Okay. Well, then I'll give my experience. When I was deployed, we obviously had to rely on U.S. embassies a lot of times to get in and out of countries and whatnot, and sometimes you get to be with the Marine security guard and whatnot. But we even had a guy here at one time who was a gunnery sergeant, and uh, he had served on Marine security guard duty, and he had really, really nice suits. And they had given him a special clothing allowance to buy these suits because when they were with world dignitaries, they had to look very well-dressed, and many times they were not to be in uniform, and so they had to have really nice suits, so they got this special allowance to buy these really, really nice suits. They were expected, obviously, to carry themselves in a certain manner and to act a certain way because they were part of the embassy who's representing the United States in this foreign country. Now, we say, well, that's obvious. We would expect an ambassador and those at the embassy to have a certain level of professionalism, a certain decorum, a certain all this. Well, then, Christian, if you and I, and we are, 
citizens of heaven and ambassadors from heaven, then would it not be a reasonable expectation for you and I to have a certain decorum, if you will, representing heaven? Absolutely. So let's read verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, I know that's not a complete sentence, but we are going to stop there and just examine this phrase today. And we're going to look at three points as we learn to live as strangers, which is what sojourners means. As we learn to live as strangers here on the earth. The first point I want us to notice is our communication. An ambassador is always going to have communication with his homeland, I mean, he's not going to go over there and just vacation, right? Obviously, he's expected to contact back to the State Department and, and update things that are going on. There's supposed to be communication. Secondly, we're going to see our course as we observe God will judge according to our work. And then lastly, we'll study our conduct as we observe that we, uh, what is to be our motivation here on earth. You and I, Christian, need to learn to live as citizens of heaven. So let's ask the Lord for his guidance, please. Father, I pray as we examine this verse this morning again that you give us wisdom. Teach us, Lord, to be true strangers on this world, but yet ambassadors to this world, and Lord, to live as citizens of heaven. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 17, it starts, And if you call on the Father. Now, the if clause in the way the Greek language is designed, there's different, different ways in which that clause can be written. And this one, it could be also translated, since. So may I read it that way? And since ye are a call on the Father. You see, there's an expectation of us to call on God. Just as an ambassador would be expected to call back to their homeland, so you and I are expected to pray and talk to God. Now, Christian, you ever think of the uh, wonderful privilege it is to be able to, first of all, call the God of this universe Father, and then secondly, to be able to talk to Him as our Father? That He cares enough for you that He's going to listen, and He's going to heed, and He's going to pay attention to what you say because he wants to hear from you. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba, the closest we would have to that in the English language would be more like Daddy. Now, that is amazing to me that God wants that kind of personal relationship with me. Isn't it you? But it says, and if you call on the Father, you see, he's all-knowing, so we can trust him in all things. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. You know, there's anytime you need direction in life, anytime you need comfort, you can call on God, and he is ready to hear. Aren't you glad you're not going to get a busy signal when you call God? Now let's talk about our approach to God. You know, God says we can come to him boldly. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, 
We say, seeing that we, that we, have, uh, we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but is in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, I find it amazing we can speak boldly to God. Not brashly, but boldly. That we can come to God with anything. You know, we're going to talk about a little bit more about this in just a moment, but when we come to God, we're, not ever, we're never bringing new information to Him. He already knows everything. You say, so why then pray? We're not praying for God's sake. We're praying for ours. We're showing our dependence on Him. You see, it's too easy to live this life thinking, I got it under control. You know what I have under control? Nothing. You know who is in control of everything? He is. So why don't I talk to him and seek his direction in everything? Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense than trying to make it up myself and messing it up? But when we come to God, yes, we can come boldly, but we also need to come humbly. We need to realize who our God is. He is holiness. He is justice. He is love. He is perfection. He is all these things. And we need to realize that as we come to God, he's not just some genie in a bottle, but he is the God of this universe. In the Old Testament, he told the Israelites in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Another way in which we should pray as we approach him should be energetic and fervent. James 5.16, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, if I were an ambassador and I really needed something and I picked up the phone and they were him hauling around and saying, well, we'll get back to you. You know how government works, right? The speed of government. You know what I'd do? Call them back and say, no, this is urgent. I need this now. And if they wouldn't listen, I'd call up the chain of command and I'd be like, I need this now. You don't understand. This is urgent. We need to get this done right now. Now, I'm not saying we treat God that way, but the thing is, is God has said that we are to bring our request to him. And he gives us examples of what, what the Bible calls importunate prayer. Those that keep bringing the request to God again and again and again, and again, until God answers. Now, Paul says he prayed to have the thorn in the flesh removed three times. But when God gave him an answer, Paul stopped praying about it. He accepted the grace of God. And here's the thing, Christian. We need to pray that we get an answer. But when we get an answer, accept the answer. Sometimes we act like little children. I don't like that answer. Well, if he really knows what's best, and he does then that is the best answer. Right? So we need to put away the childishness that thinks I know best. And then our prayer should be consistent. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. So as I said, as we talk to God, we're not giving him any new information. But as we talk to God, there are several things I believe in which we should be praying. Number one is just times of adoration where we just stop and thank God for who he is and recognize his great power, his great 
character, his great attributes, and just stop and praise him for who he is. That's appropriate in our prayers and should be part of our prayers, just stopping and thinking. Did Jesus not even in the model prayer he give us say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What are you doing? Recognizing the holiness of God. Okay? So it's not just some words we throw out there, but just stop and contemplate who you're talking to for just a moment. Right? Secondly, there should be confessing and forsaking of sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the word confession in that verse, if we confess our sins, is an interesting Greek word. It's the word homo logos. The word homo meaning same, logos being word. And so the idea is when we confess our sins, what we are doing is saying, agreeing with God or saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. Okay, it's not, I'm sorry I got caught. It's, Lord, I realize this sin is against you, a holy God. It violates your holy character. It violates your love. It violates your purity. You understand, that gives us a different view of, number one, it puts God back in his place and a proper view of God. It gives us a proper view of God's word. It gives us a proper view of self and a proper view of our sin. Okay, because we have trivialized sin in our society, have we not? You see, they're no longer a drunk, they just got a drinking problem. They're no longer um, adulterers, they're just having an affair. You know, they're no longer committing a fornication, they're just sleeping together. We've trivialized sin. Now, it's interesting, we talk about those, and everybody's like, oh, amen, preacher, amen. But then we start talking about, you know, how we trivialize gossip and lying. I've heard Christians justify, well, you know, I lied to them for their sake. What? Well, you know, it wasn't really gossip. It was just me trying to find out more so I could pray for him better. Be careful with that. Because, you know, there's some things about others' lives we don't need to know. And if they don't want to share, you don't need to be prying. And number two, if they do share it with you, doesn't mean you need to tell everybody else about it. People share things with you because they hold it in confidence. And you, if you're going to tell somebody, ask them permission before doing so. Maybe they're sharing it with you in confidence and don't want the whole world to know. And it's not your business whether you think everybody else should know or not. If somebody tells me something and they say, Pastor, I really like this to stay between us, but yet I think it would be nice for everybody else to pray about it, it's not for me to decide to break that confidence. If they say this is between us, then guess where it has to stay? Between us. Thanksgiving. You want to learn to be satisfied with what God has given you, start thanking God for what you have. Stop focusing on what you don't have. Stop looking at the Joneses and everything that they have that you wish you had that you don't have. And start thanking God for what you have because I can promise you everyone in this room is doing better than many people in this world today. I've been to foreign countries. I've been to third world countries. I've seen how some people live. And Christian, American Christian, we have so much for which to be thankful for. We could spend all day just saying thank you, Lord, 
and going down the list of everything that he has for us. By the way, how many of you had a dry night's sleep last night without rain dripping on your head? You know, there's people, every time it rains, they're getting water in their dwelling. How many of you had, just a few days ago, turned the air conditioner on, and now all of a sudden it got cold again, now you got the heat back on? You know, there's people who have no heat, no air conditioning. How many of you had a good breakfast this morning? Amen. You didn't have breakfast this morning? Okay, well, that's your fault. <laughs> You'll take that. All right. It's not because it wasn't available, right? Okay, there you go. It was a choice. You understand what I'm saying? Understand some of these basic things. How many of you put on clothes this morning and have no holes in it? Except for the ones where your head's supposed to go through and arms, you know, but... You know, there's people today that don't own a, a garment that's not torn and tattered. I mean, think about it. And then above all this, if you are a born-again child of God, you are a citizen of heaven. Don't tell me you don't have something to be thankful for. And I promise you, the more you learn to say thank you for the things you have, the less you're going to desire more things. There are those in this world that hold on to things of this world as if they're going to somehow bring them happiness, and they never do. You notice every time the newest, latest, greatest widget comes out, you know, the newest, greatest, latest phone or newest, latest game, game platform or whatever, people will camp out there for days trying to get this new, latest, and greatest because this is going to make me so happy when I get this thing. But then two years later, it's outdated, and they're standing in line again and getting the newest, latest, and greatest. Things will never bring happiness. Another thing we should be praying is what we call our supplications or our requests to God. Now, we have a prayer sheet, and we have on there, we pray for lost souls, we pray for our community, we pray for <coughs> physical needs, we pray for our missionaries, and we bring these requests to God. I've heard people say, well, you know, I pray and I never hear God answer prayer. Well, let me ask you, how do you pray? If you pray, Lord, bless all the missionaries on the foreign field. Well, I never see God answer to prayer. Well, let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is the way you pray. You see, God wants us to pray specifically. Okay, so, Lord, I pray for Tim Stalkup family to continue to be able to get the funds, to continue to be able to run that... Uh, community center, and that more Muslims will come there, and we'll see more fo folks saved. Now, when Tim sends a letter saying that such and such a church took them on for extra support to help pay for that center, and 10 people showed up and three people got saved, you can see specifically how God answered that prayer. You understand the difference? Other than, Lord, bless all the missionaries. Well, he is, but you don't see it because you don't you didn't pray anything specific enough to be able to hold on to it. And I believe too often we pray too generically. Does that make sense? You know, God cares about the specifics in your life. Jesus made that abundantly clear. He said he knows how many hairs are on your head. Brother Al, some of us are a little bit easier to count than others. Hey, I said us, because mine too. It didn't used to be that way. I have pictures. I had a full head of hair at one point. That's no lie. 
<laughs> God cares about the details of your life. Then why don't you pray specifically Amen. about those things? Because, you know, my wife, I believe, is a great example of this, especially while we were in college, while I was in college. It was very tight financially, but she still does today. She'll pray specifically, you know, when we go to the grocery store and ask God for help finding the good deals and whatnot. And, and it's amazing. I mean, sometimes there was one time she left the store paying like a penny for everything she got. I mean, that's amazing. I don't know how she does it. And no, she did not steal it from them. It was all legit between coupons and sales and everything else. I mean, she almost got it for nothing. But she prays about it before she goes. You ever think of that? See, God cares about all things. So we can bring those supplications to him. And then the last one that I want to touch on this morning, as we pray, how do we pray? What, for what do we pray? Is intercession. Intercession. That means praying for others. Now, I already mentioned on our church prayer list, we have a list of souls who need to be saved. We should be interceding because God cares about their soul more than I do. He wants to see them saved more than I do. So how do you pray for somebody who's lost? Well, God desires to see him saved, does he not? God is, but God is not going to force a man or woman to make that decision. He has given us free will to choose, has he not? Okay, so I think it's a proper and legitimate prayer, God, but your Holy Spirit can convict them. And I pray conviction on them that they can't rest, that they're miserable until they turn to Christ. You say, well, you want them to be miserable? I'd rather be miserable here on earth than miserable for eternity in hell. So yes, I think that's a proper prayer. But then intercessory prayer goes beyond that. Okay, so I also mentioned we have one there about those that are sick among us. And we could bring those requests and pray those specifically to God. My wife and I went to New Testament Baptist Church several weeks back when they were having uh, revival services with Jeremy Lockhart. And I'm working on getting him to come set up some meetings with us. And the message he preached the night we were there, I want you all to hear that message. It talks specifically how to pray for others, spiritually. And it was praying for strength of others, praying for, and I can't remember all the points right off the top of my head, but it really was an excellent message showing how to do proper intercessory prayer because while it's important to pray for physical needs, those are temporal. But praying that others will be strengthened by God and continue to serve God and, and some of these other points that he brought out, you know, those have eternal rewards. And so... Let's think about our intercessory prayer as we pray for others. <clears throat> we spent quite a bit of time on our communication. Let's go on now to point number two, our course. Going back to our passage in 1 Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. Aren't you glad God is impartial and not a respecter of persons? Say, what do you mean? He said, whosoever will may come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, he doesn't have certain individuals that he's picked and said, I'm going to allow these into heaven 
and not these folks. I'm glad God is not a respecter of persons. That the gospel is given for both Jew and Gentile. There is no preference over Jew over Gentile. Now, looking out here, I think everybody should say amen to that because I don't see any Jewish-looking people. The closest one looking might be Troy, but I don't think he's Jewish either. His grandparents are? Okay, that actually doesn't surprise me. But there's no preference of rich over poor. No preference given because of status or heritage. Now, I want you to understand something. God's perfect impartiality gives him clear judgment. You know, we all have a hard time having a completely clear judgment on things, don't we? You know, the symbol used for our justice system has the lady standing there blindfolded because justice is supposed to be blind, totally impartial. Aren't you glad God, in his perfectness, in his complete impartiality, is able to have a totally, if you will, then, in that, with that analogy, a blind judgment in that it's totally impartial. Now, it says, who without respect to persons judgeth according to every man's work. Now, this work is not referring to salvation. Not works for salvation. Okay? Because the Bible makes it clear in many passages that it's not by works that we're saved. There's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. Every religion of this world teaches some types of work salvation. Christianity teaches it's not by works, it's by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the work is already done. Jesus Christ died in your place and in mine. He shed his blood. He sacrificed himself, paid the debt of sin, which is death, for you and me. 2 Corinthians makes it clear, he became sin for me. He was buried, but hallelujah, as we celebrate today, he rose again. The work of salvation is already done. I just have to receive the gift. So if it says God is judging us according to our work, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. As a believer, we are still going to stand before judgment before Jesus Christ, right? Now, I am thankful the Bible makes it clear that it's not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of reward. Now, unlike modern society where everybody gets a trophy just because they participated, God's judgment is fair, is it not? And some of us remember the olden days when not everybody on the team got a trophy. When we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, our works are going to be tried for reward. In other words, what have we done for Christ? What have we done for eternity that matters? I want you to think about that. We spend so much time on the temporal things of this world, but they're all going to pass away. How much time are we investing in the eternal things that truly matter? Winning souls to Christ living a godly, separated life for Christ, continuing in prayer, trusting God for my life. All these things, again, are not earning salvation, but it's about rewards. 
Hold your place here in 1 Peter. We have a few minutes. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if we don't get this message done this week, well, if the Lord tarries, we'll come back to it next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and other buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for that they shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. But if a man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So, if your life is living about self, the temporal things of today, trying to gain possessions, the Bible says that that's wood, hay, and stubble. But if your life is about winning souls for Jesus Christ, living a life for him, and <coughs> his glory and all things, then that's gold, silver, precious stone. Now, you've all heard this illustration before, I'm sure. I got a vivid imagination. It is not probably going to happen this way, but here's, here's the kind of way I imagine it happening, okay? We're all standing in line for the judgment seat of Christ, and we have our edifice that we've built, if you will, on the foundation, okay? So just imagine small house, just for illustration point. And I'm standing here holding my house, and you're standing next to me. Now, your house may look bigger than mine, but they haven't been tried yet. So we come up, and here's this conveyor belt, and I put mine on, and it goes through the fire, and then it comes out the other side, and it's a pile of ashes because it was just wood, hay, stubble. And so when it was tried by fire, it burned. And so while it may have looked good to men this side of glory, it truly was nothing because my motives were wrong and I had a selfish desire for everything I did, and it was wood, hay, stubble. But somebody else then, you come along and you take yours and you put it on the conveyor belt and it goes through the fire and it comes out the other side and it's bright and shining because gold, silver, and precious stones are purified in the fire and you're able to take that and now lay it at the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to make light of the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Because we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, okay? And I hope you don't take it that I'm making light of, but this just helps me imagine how it can happen, okay? And people may look and think, well, you know, but you didn't have a lot going on on earth. But everything you did was for Christ, and you did it for his glory. As you prayed, you prayed according to God's will, and you prayed for others, and you prayed for lost souls, and all the things you did, all the works you did were for God's glory, and now you're able to take those crowns and lay them at the feet of Christ. Again, Excuse my imagination. If you can come up with a better way of explaining it, I'll be happy to listen. Okay? But I want you to think about it. You see, we got this false concept that as soon as we die, or as soon as Christ raptures us out, tears are gone. But the judgment even says there'll be reward or loss of reward. Now, let me ask you a question. You have a pile of ashes to lay at your Savior's feet because you lived your whole life for self and not for Him. Do you think your eyes are going to be dry? I do not. As a matter of fact, 
If you read in Revelation, tears aren't wiped away till the new heaven, new earth are created. I believe there will be moments in heaven of shame and embarrassment, but I'm glad it says, but they're still saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, you still get to enter into glories of heaven. All of us that are at that judgment will enter into the glories of heaven. You just won't have any rewards that others will have. I want you to think about that. Now, I've said for many years, we will lay those, feet at his, lay those treasures at his feet. I had somebody challenge me recently and say, don't you think he might give them back to us? Maybe. I don't know. But I'll tell you either way, I don't want to stand before him empty-handed. I do not want to stand before him empty-handed. I want this life to count for something when I stand before him. So I want to be a good ambassador while I'm here. The course of action you decide to take here on earth will determine your eternal reward or loss of reward. Moving on, let's talk last about our conduct. Going back to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. The end of the verse says, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, when it talks about the passing of time, it's not an inactive passing of time as we often say to one another, I'm just passing the time. I'm just killing the time. I'm just wasting time. May I say, Christian, I'm learning that that's improper. My time is limited, and the Bible says I am to redeem the time. Now, that does not mean there's not a time for leisure, there's not a time for rest, but what it means is I need to be conscientious of what I am doing with the time that God has given me and not just wasting time for the sake of wasting time. Okay? Having a family get together and playing games together is building up a family. That is not wasting time. There's a purpose to what you're doing, right? A family vacation helps you get rested to go back, recharge to what God has called you to do. That is not wasting time when done properly. You understand what I'm saying? But sitting there surfing the internet for three hours at a time, learning absolutely nothing but everybody's gossip, that is a complete waste of time. So passing the time. Pass the time is conduct yourself. And it's an imperative, it's a command. In other words, actively pass the time here of your sojourning, which means to stay among strangers, with fear. So, let's talk about our sojourning. We're reminded several times in scriptures that we're just pilgrims here on this earth. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Peter says in 1 Peter 2:11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. You and I need to stop viewing this earth as our home, but view it as a foreign land. My home is in heaven. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, the things I see happening in this world today are making it easier and easier to view this as a strange land and not as home. But our conduct is to live to please God. 
So let's look again at the end of the verse, sojourning here in fear. Now, when we think of fear, we think of phobia or the, the scared cowering in the corner. When I think of that type of fear, I think of what our government did to take control, or all the world's governments did to take control the last three years of all the people. Truthfully, it was a campaign of fear, and fear paralyzes and fear controls. That, my friend, I am happy to tell you, is not what the Bible means when it says we are to live in fear. So let me explain what the Bible means when it says you and I are to live in fear. We have today an overused word in our vocabulary that, Christian, I think we should be more careful using because it should be reserved, I believe, for God himself. And that is the word awesome. Full of awe. You see, when we look at God, we should have a fear or a respect for who God is. An awe for who God is. Okay, remember as a child or when you had little children, how my daddy's better than your daddy? And every daddy loved that stage. Now, when they became teenagers, their brains all fell out. And then, you know, my dad's dumb. But then they got in their 20s again, and then all of a sudden, somehow they put the brain back in and realized that dad was actually smart all along. That little child who looks up to daddy as my daddy can do anything has a proper fear of his father. That child that looks up to his father and says, my daddy who can do anything, and looks at him and says, I want to please my daddy with my life. Because the greatest fear in my life is to displease my father that child has a proper fear of his daddy doesn't mean he cowers to him as a matter of fact he runs to him but he fears him because my daddy's the best and he can do anything does that help you understand a proper fear of god see my god he's the only god and my god truly can do anything and my god's greater than any other god and I certainly don't want my life to displease my God. Matter of fact, the worst thing that can happen would be for my father, my heavenly father, to have to look at me and say, son, I'm disappointed in you. I fear those words because I have a proper respect for him and awe for him because you know who's awesome? God is. You know who deserves my awe? God does. Every day of our lives, we need to have that fear of God. Every day of our sojourning on this earth, I need to say, I have an awesome God. Amen. Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But if we're not willing to follow the commands of Scripture, we're not demonstrating a proper fear of God. Because the Word of God is exactly that, the Word of God. And if I'm not going to follow the Word of God, then how can I say I fear the author of the Bible? So Christian, we're just pilgrims here on earth. We're strangers in this land, but we are ambassadors from heaven. Let us therefore live as strangers. Let us remember our communication with the Father. 
Let us run our course that God has set and let us run with a proper conduct that will please the Lord. Let us close in prayer.